You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English, and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 190, by Rudolf Steiner, Twelve Lectures, translated by Paul King, entitled Past and Future Impulses in Societal Events. This is Lecture 2, given in Dornach on the 22nd of March, 1919. Today we are going to look again at the social organism, and do so by looking at the parallels it has with the natural human organism. When a parallel of this kind is drawn, we need to see it as a means of understanding better many things associated with the social organism. On the other hand, you shouldn't insist too much on these parallels when it comes to the public, because the public today has a strong distrust of such parallels and believes one is just trying to play pointless games with analogies. Then people are inclined to reject the matter. It is especially important for you to bear this in mind. Spiritual science is a parallel we have already often drawn, and which we will pursue today from a certain perspective, but which will definitely bring us closer to our goals and clarity. Spiritual science sheds light on many social phenomena of the present, but I would ask you to keep it more in the background until the general prejudices against drawing parallels between the natural human organism and the social organism have receded. I myself do use these parallels in public discourse, but I guard against playing pointless games with analogies. I use them in my Zurich lectures on the social question and do so in my soon-to-be-published book on the social question. But this caution is not always practiced by people well acquainted with the anthroposophical worldview. I therefore exhort you expressly to caution. So with this constraint, we will look once more at the social organism from a particular perspective. We divide the usual natural human organism into three parts, into the head system, which we can also call the nerve sense system, the lung and heart system, we can also say the rhythmic system, and the metabolic system. All the functions of the human organism are encompassed in these three systems. Any process in the human body can be brought under one of these three categories. It is noteworthy that each of these systems has its own particular connection with the outer world. Precisely on this point we see that dividing the human organism into these three systems is no arbitrary matter. The nerve sense system is connected with the outer world by the senses. The respiratory system by the organs of breath, the metabolic system by the organs of nutrition. Each of these systems has its own separate relationship with the external world. Now, we can also divide the social organism into three parts, into a first, second, and third branch, in such a way that each is independent. In the social organism, we therefore have to distinguish the three branches as the economic system, the legislative or legal system, and the intellectual institutions. One head system or nerve system relates to the economic system. Two, 
lung heart system or rhythmic system relates to the legislative system, and three, metabolic system relates to the intellectual institutions. I would ask you to consider carefully what I have just written on the board because it is very important. The head of the social organism is the economic system, the rhythmic system, the circulatory system, the system of lung and heart is the legislative system, and the metabolic system is contained in the intellectual institutions. This is why I have always said that if you want to picture the matter properly, we have to picture the social organism in relation to the human organism as standing on its head. If we were playing pointless games with analogies, we might think that the intellectual institutions correspond with the human head system. This is not the case. The intellectual organization corresponds with the metabolic system. We could say that the social organism feeds itself by the mental work people do in the social organism. The head talents in the social organism are derived from the conditions in nature. If a particular nation lives in an area rich in mineral deposits, with rich treasures in the earth, with fertile soil, the social organism will be talented, even to the point of genius. When the ground is infertile, when there are few riches in the ground, the social organism is foolish, ungifted. So we mustn't just analogize, but aim for what is correct, especially when we draw parallels. You know that we have to aim for what is correct in other areas too, where we have to avoid a mere play of ideas derived from spiritual scientific experience. If people play with analogies, they will say, for example, quote, we can compare the human waking state with summer and the sleeping state with winter, close quote. You know that this would be completely erroneous. I have pointed out for you on many occasions that if we draw a parallel between the seasons and human life, we have to put it precisely the other way round and regard summer as the sleeping state and winter as the waking state of the earth. In the same way, we have to regard the economic life as the head of the social organism. And the work people do mentally, please note, in its effect on the social organism, has to be regarded as the social organism's food. It is exceptionally important to understand this, particularly in our time. As I stressed yesterday, our time has great difficulty finding any kind of solution to the social question, because in present-day humanity there is a preponderance of antisocial tendencies. There are antisocial tendencies in the relationship between one person and another. But sometimes these antisocial instincts are masked, are hidden. For example, they are hidden in the national aspirations that are prevalent with such intensity over the earth today. These national aspirations are still seen as something quite obvious and natural, whereas what is obvious for the real development of people in our times is that an international element needs to emerge in a very decisive sense. But it is very difficult to speak about this with people today. With regard to other nations, people can usually see that something international should begin, but usually not for their own nation. 
If one tries to speak about these things with people, one meets something I came across at one time many years ago in connection with another subject in the Anthroposophical Society, which was then the Theosophical Society. It was my task to relate how animals have a group soul and that when an animal dies, it is absorbed into the group soul and doesn't have an individual reincarnation. A lady who had a dog she loved very much rejoined that that might be the case for all other animals, but did not apply to her dog. He had already acquired such a distinctly individual soul that he would have a personal reincarnation. It was very difficult to reach the lady. Later the group met again at a time when this lady was away. Another lady then said that she could not understand how such an intelligent woman could not see that her dog didn't have an individual soul. She had understood this immediately, but her own parrot definitely had an individual soul. That was a different matter altogether. This is a very instructive example of how people reason when matters are touched on that are connected with them personally. But there are the most varied reasons why in the present times certain obstacles arise against what we can rationally call socialization. When you survey various things, you know from our anthroposophical spiritual science, it will become clear to you that the intellectual life in human evolution is in decline. People are certainly very proud of their advanced intellectual development, but in what they think and feel there is actually no spirit. You need look no further back than the third post-Atlantean cultural period. The source from which people drew may indeed have been an atavistic clairvoyance, but people gained a wide wisdom from this atavistic clairvoyance, a wisdom full of spiritual content. People today look back with a certain sense of superiority at what the Chaldeans or the Egyptians achieved. This haughtiness is very, very unjustified. What academic and philological work brings to light concerning the wisdom of the Egyptians and the Chaldeans is not very fruitful. But in the end, this is, quote, men's own spirit, close quote. This does not penetrate into the deep insights possessed by the ancient Egyptian priests, the Egyptian mystery hierophants, the Chaldean priests, the Chaldean mystery hierophants, through their, albeit still somewhat atavistic, clairvoyant wisdom. Even Greco-Roman culture still contained more wisdom than is in what people think and feel today, what flows into their ideas and notions of the spiritual. The person of today has basically grown poor in spiritual life, and a particular impoverishment of spiritual life has emerged since the dawning of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural age, since the middle of the 15th century. An enormous amount of real spiritual life ebbed away then. And the human intellect became increasingly dried out, as it were. It therefore confined itself more and more to forming images of the external world. People no longer want to believe in genuine revelations from the spiritual world and no longer receive them. But the mental or spiritual content that people develop in themselves does not only have subjective significance for themselves. To the extent that what people develop spiritually or mentally within themselves 
has significance for what lives between one person and another, to that extent is what people have in their heads, what they have inside, also food for the social organism. The social organism is is nourished by it. So, you will understand that anyone who speaks with understanding about the social organism is obliged to say that since the 15th century this social organism has suffered want, has starved. The decline of a real spiritual life has meant a gradual starvation of the social organism, of the social organism in all territories. And we can say that the social organism today has become a pretty gaunt, skinny entity and is threatening to become still gaunter and skinnier. If today someone were to depict the social organism symbolically as a human individual, they would have to depict a thin individual, not a stout one. One could not use the image of a well-fed little monk as the symbol of the social organism. If you consider this, you will be able to understand that while the stomach of our social organism, which we fill with our mental work, is rather empty, by contrast, precisely the head, namely the economic aspect of our social organism, is particularly active. The social organism thinks a great deal today. It produces plenty of intellectuality. It is perhaps a rather dangerous comparison, but it nevertheless ought to be made. You know that severe undernourishment, coupled with intense intellectuality, brings the intellectuality somewhat into disorder. Now, we shouldn't think that our social organism is necessarily predisposed to go mad at any moment. But many things that happen today, the responsibility for which lies not alone with people, but rather with what pulsates through the world as social thinking, shows itself to be diseased in this social organism. And we only talk about the need to cure the social organism precisely because we sense it is ailing. But even though the comparison has to be made at some point, we will, as mentioned, leave it aside for now. The reason the comparison had to be made was to show that human development actually proceeds according to certain laws, that things don't happen because people subjectively want them to, but what happens follows an ongoing system of laws. We have entered a period in which the social organism suffers hunger, in which it thinks too much, in which its head system is too strongly developed. This doesn't mean, however, that there is too much economic activity today. There is far too little economic activity. Humanity needs to produce a great deal more. But this will only happen when the social organism is properly separated out into its three branches. But people actually think about the economic life as though it were all on its own in the world. When I look at the social organism from this perspective, at how it would like to negotiate everything, absolutely everything, one-sidedly, in terms of the head of the social organism, in terms of economic activity, I am always reminded of a great concern once expressed to me, a long time ago now, by the Austrian poet Hermann Orlet, 
concerning the future of humanity, as though from a certain confusion of the social organism with the individual human organism. Hermann Roulette was a very dear man. He compiled the beautiful book of portraits of Goethe, but as was the fashion in the 60s and 70s of the previous century, that is the 19th century, he was a very enlightened man and therefore very proud of how far humanity had progressed with its head culture. And he once expressed to me his deep concern about what would become of people if they continued to become cleverer and cleverer, if they thought more and more. The head would develop more and more at the expense of the rest of the organism. And he thought that if the world continued to develop in this way, people would have to roll over the earth as mere heads, as balls. He expressed a real concern here. This concern is not applicable to individuals, but it is applicable in a certain sense, at least for our present times, to the social organism, which has its head in the economic system and is threatening to become head more and more. What I have been saying is a matter of very great practical importance for life today. I have often given lectures to working-class associations. One is well understood by the working class itself, but for the time being they are held back by their leaders. These are deeply embedded, not in an individual thinking, but in what they absorb from social thinking, by thinking of the social organism. When one lectures in these circles, about what is appropriate and necessary today, that the social organism has to be divided into an economic system, into a political, legal, or legislative system, and into an intellectual organization, one can be absolutely certain that following their manifesto, they will argue, quote, yes, but everything must be based on the economic system. Why do we need these other branches? Once economic activity is put on a proper footing, the legislative and intellectual life will follow automatically. Close quote. People are not aware that this is not individual thinking, that this is the thinking derived from the social organism murmuring through their heads. Above all, it thinks too much. This means it only thinks in economic terms. It cannot yet decide to develop its heart and its lungs in other words, a proper, separated-off state. Indeed, it cannot even become clearly conscious of its stomach and of how vital it is for individual human capacities to make a contribution to the social organism. I would like you to understand that talk of this kind that sees value only in the economic system is deeply grounded in human development, that it will, therefore, requires strong forces to turn things around in this way. Just think how necessary it will be for the life of thought to be emancipated, to stand on its own feet. How people will have to understand that from the most primary level to the highest level of education, everything must be separated from the state and must be able to develop independently of the economic life. This is wanted today neither by the middle classes nor, and particularly not, by the social democrats. The social democrats will always argue, justifiably from their point of view, that the economic life of earlier times was always supported by two pillars, 
by the spiritual intellectual life, and by the state. This is given populist expression by saying, quote, Human economic life must be supported, as has always been the case, by throne, state, and altar, spiritual life. For some this is said with loathing, and others who are still in old ways of thinking say it with enthusiasm. Throne and altar are necessary. Meanwhile, in modern times, the throne has become a presidential chair, but this is mostly a change only in outer aesthetics. And the altar has become a Wertheim safe, but this also only makes an external difference. There is no fundamental difference for people's feeling. Modern people are often as fond of a Wertheim safe as earlier people were of the altar. But this is still pointing back to a time when, in a certain sense, there was still an understanding and receptivity for the free life of thought. Just think, it was not so long ago that the free high schools, the universities, were absorbed by the state. Prior to this, the universities were held in high esteem, had their own prestige. They were autonomous bodies. They have lost this autonomy completely. They train up good, obedient servants of the state in all areas. This is met on the other side by hypertrophy in the social head system, in economic life. Everything is thought out on the basis of the economic system. And the view that sees the business office and machine replacing throne and altar is also not exactly a perspective pointing to things capable of making the social organism viable. I have often said that in that case the world would become a huge accounting system for a kind of shop floor existence. And precisely individual human capacities that are food for the social organism would atrophy, would be paralyzed if throne and altar are replaced by the office and factory, the business office and machines. But this is all connected with the fact that people's life together today, that is, individual life, induces a thinking in people that is oriented predominantly toward the economic life, that only has understanding for and interest in economic activity. This has emerged in recent times due to the hold that modern technology has got on things, and with modern technology, the modern form of capitalism. And here, initially, it was the driving and leading circles that became dependent on what we could call a, in quotes, social intellect that is oriented purely toward the economic system. I have frequently pointed out how the human being is sucked up, as it were, into an objective social intellect, into the inundation from the head system with which the social organism thinks around us. It is in this thinking that we are enmeshed today. You know that I have often indicated how the human individuality with its own thinking is gradually shut out even from the life of capital, Today, objective capital is what works over the earth. Where capital is particularly active in commerce, the human individuality is actually excluded. One moment one is down, the next one is up. One moment everything is lost, the next 
all is regained. Our stocks and shares work on their own. They work more and more on their own. I usually use a symptom as an example. In the first half and into the last third of the 19th century, the decisive figures were the individual bankers. Then, for large undertakings, it became more the corporations. America, which has hobbled behind somewhat in this development, is just now making the transition, is making the transition from the broad reach of the individual to the working of objective capital, and will probably do so to an outstanding extent. But the individual bankers were so powerful that we can see their social status by looking at how, I think it was in the 40s, I have related this here once before, the French king's finance minister went to Rothschild in order, well, what do finance ministers always do? To pump him for money for the kingdom of France. Rothschild was just at that moment busy with a shoemaker or a carpenter, and this business was just as important to him as that of the finance minister of the king of France, even more important. The finance minister announced himself. The servant went in, came back and said, quote, Mr. Rothschild asks you to please wait a moment. He is busy with a carpenter. Close quote. What? A carpenter? But I am the finance minister of the king of France. The servant replied, quote, Mr. Rothschild says please to wait. Close quote. The minister flung open the doors and stormed in. Quote, I am the finance minister of the king of France. Close quote. Quote, please take a seat. I am just dealing with this gentleman. Close quote. Quote, but I am the finance minister of the king of France. Close quote. Quote, well, in that case, please take two seats. Close quote. Although only a symptom, you see personal power glimmering through here. Personal initiative in this form has more or less ceased and was in the process of ceasing in the field of economic activity before the catastrophe of the war broke out. What thinks by itself in economic life, social intelligence, gain the upper hand over the individual intelligence of the individual person. To begin with, this social intelligence, born out of the economic life, out of the hypertrophy of the economic life, is very cool-headed, or prudent, sober, level-headed, German nüchtern, and this is precisely what had to be particularly noticeable to someone acquainted with the social life from a higher perspective. How cool-headed the thinking born out of the economic life has become. Initially, a new kind of group thinking emerges among people, but this group thinking is tremendously cool-headed. It was born out of the middle classes during the capitalist period, became smug and philistine, spread as philistinism to wider circles, and now, as its most cool-headed product, has taken hold of socialist thinking. On this point there is something very, very striking that needs to be said. The circumstances that have run their course have brought with them the fact that the majority of the working classes are free thinkers, non-believers. The number of people leaving the church from these groups is very large. Those who don't leave often stay because they just don't consider the matter to be very important. But we often hear something else. 
We often hear it stressed that for the working class person, socialist doctrines serve as a substitute for the old religions. This is only possible out of a certain over-excited enthusiasm, not out of a true enthusiasm, for socialist doctrines which only think out of the economic life are naturally something terribly cool-headed and cannot somehow take on a religious character. You will see from this that the gravity with which I have often spoken to you in these lectures is also really a sacred commandment, we could say, of world history. When, on the one hand, through spiritual scientific observation, we follow human development since the age of the consciousness soul, and when, on the other hand, we look at what we find in socialist thinking, and which vindicates the anthroposophical view, when we look at all this, we say to ourselves, an enormously important factor connected with the social organism is its gradual starvation. It really does go hungry if real spiritual life doesn't enter human beings, if spiritual life doesn't take hold of people. Just as an individual person will starve if they have nothing to eat, so a social organism will starve if people do not come to a spiritual life. It is really standing on its head, this social organism. The individual person needs food to live. The social organism needs people's talents, people's gifts, people's inner revelations. So that from these talents, from these inner revelations, can arise the only thing that can make the social organism healthy. Recall what I have often stressed, that we couldn't build something like the Gotthard Tunnel today if the people directing the building did not understand differential and integral calculus. But this comes from Leibniz. The English say it comes from Newton. Well, let them say so. No matter which one it was, the Gotthard Tunnel was not only built by the people laying one stone on the other, but Leibniz or Newton was also involved. This is just an example of how the most material things also really arise from the mental spiritual life. If you shut out individual mental capacities, you also destroy the economic life. It can never be a question of setting up a global bureaucracy, which would most certainly shut out the free initiative of mental capacities. This global bureaucracy, which is the ideal of Trotsky and Lenin, would, as a matter of course, bring the social order to the point of starvation. Anyone who is honest about the social question of the present times must stress again and again that the thing of prime importance is the free development of intellectual and spiritual science. This would not mean somehow introducing an unpractical element into modern life, but is the most practical thing imaginable, because it is directly and really necessary. The objective events of 1914 crashed in over people's heads, precisely because people's individual abilities had been suppressed for so long. The objective events crashed in over people's heads. Individual capacities had receded into the background. People were unable to master external life. Their concepts, their ideas, their notions were too constrained. They couldn't stretch over the objective events. And there was certainly no longer the slightest hint of mutual understanding to be found. 
These last four and a half years have had to be humanity's great taskmaster, teaching people how vital it is for spiritual life to flow into them as the food of the social organism. We can understand these circumstances if we are really able to see the social organism in this respect as a threefold system. We have to learn to understand that within the social organism the economic life must establish its foreign relations independently, that state bodies must deal with state bodies, spiritual life with spiritual life. It should not be the case that one unitary state system deals with another unitary state system. It should operate as the human organism does, where each of the three systems develops its own particular relationship with the outer world. The sort of conflicts that broke out, for example, in 1914 would be best avoided if international relations were managed in such a way that only one branch of the social organism dealt with its corresponding branch in another country. Just think how much more complicated it would be for two territories to engage in conflict because conflict can initially only arise between state system and state system. It couldn't be carried out, because the spiritual organization and the economic system, if centralized in themselves, would have something to say about it. We just have to realize how different the whole organization of life would be if this threefold structure were set up. On the other hand, we also have to be clear just how thoroughly prejudiced people are today against such a rethinking or relearning. If the question arises again and again, why is there so much resistance against spiritual science? It is truly not because it is difficult to grasp, we have often stressed this, but it is solely people's inability to resolve to arrange their habits of thought in a different way from how these habits of thought have gradually formed over the last decades, or indeed centuries. It is much more comfortable for people to muddle along in the old rut. Small wonder, therefore, that people at this moment are thinking of establishing a superstate, German Überstadt, as they have termed it in Bern, a league of nations with an over-parliament, in quotes. We have seen, have we not, how much benefit the old nations have brought? They have shown over the last four and a half years what they can do. Now, setting up super-states and over-parliaments is a clear sign that people do not want to slip out of their old nets of thinking, that they want to remain in these thought nets. While the individual nations ought to be divided into their three branches, people want the opposite. They want to weld the whole earth, with the exception of those who are excluded already, into one great state. They want the opposite of what is grounded in the evolutionary forces of the time. So, precisely someone who is involved in spiritual science needs to really see, and also take into their will, the fact that a strong offensive is necessary against what is moving today in exactly the opposite direction. This offensive is necessary. This is something we need to tell ourselves again and again. And since we need to get used to seeing things from the inside, it would be good to try very often 
to experience inwardly in meditation the social element from the point of view I have described again today, because this can fire our will. We will discuss this further tomorrow. At five o'clock tomorrow, there will be the public eurythmic performance here, and I think I will continue this lecture at half-past seven or a quarter to eight. The end of Lecture 2